We are going to talk about irresistible grace. It is the part of this gospel that we are learning. In uh, the previous message that I deliver on the heart of the gospel, what is the gospel and how does it change us and how do we move and interact with the gospel in a way that we can share the gospel with someone. If I asked you to share the gospel, how would you do it? A lot of us will hesitate because we don't know how to put together the gospel in a way that other people would understand. But it is not up to us to make people understand, but it is up to us to understand the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is the teacher who will make the gospel understandable to your heart. When you understand the gospel, it does not mean that you are able to share that understanding with the people. What it means is that you would be able to share it with confidence because you know it. Even though you can't explain it fully, you have the confidence to share it and then the Holy Spirit has to work in other people so that the gospel will be made understood to other people. Soteriology, which means the doctrine of salvation. This is important because if you don't understand how you are saved, it is going to be very difficult for you to share your salvation with someone. And the fundamental aspect of your salvation has to depend on this one word, and that is grace. Grace is the foundation, it is the impetus, it is the hook that gets you into the kingdom. That's what grace is. Now how do you get hold of grace? And that is what I want to talk about today. Let's go back to you are in bed this morning. If you do care about when you wake up, you know that the alarm clock is your enemy. You fight with it. You fight with it every day. The reason why we fight with the alarm clock is because we know what is right, but we can't get ourselves to do what is right. And that tension, you know what you're supposed to do, but you can't bring yourself to do it. That thing is called your nature. Our human nature don't want to do what is right. Why is that? Why do you know that, for example, eating sugar is bad for you, but you can't help but just grab those pastry and donuts and, oh, the milk tea. Why can't you say, no, I don't want it? Why is it so hard for us to do things that is good for us? Why is it so hard that you know you need to get up early so that you can get more things done, but you can't do it even though you know it is the right and good thing for you? It is because our nature goes against everything that is right, everything that is good. Now you would be sitting there and say, but there are some people who have overcome the human nature. Not really. They have overcome certain aspects for now. But if you don't fight with it all the time, then your human nature will take over. Human nature is like a river. It keeps flowing. And you are on a boat and you have a paddle. If you keep on paddling, 
then you might be able to go against that current. But once you stop, what happens? You're gonna get sucked down the river because that water continues to go regardless. So the only thing that stands between you and the current of your nature is you keep on fighting. People die because they stop wanting to live. That's how you die. You give up and you die. When your body, when your flesh is too powerful, then you give up. Unfortunately, most of you today is in the state of giving up. You don't fight. You don't care to have an alarm clock. You don't even want to. It's just there to appease your mind that you said something. But you are not in a position or you don't really want to fight your human nature. Let me talk about the human nature and then I'll talk about grace and where that comes in. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the essence of what being in grace is about. The Apostle Paul says, I am what I am. And what is the Apostle Paul at this point in his life? He is this great apostle. And we look back in history and we say, yes, he persecuted the church. He had all these flaws. He put Christians in prison. He did many mean things and evil things to the church. But today, when you talk about the Apostle Paul, all of those impressions that you have of him as this crazy, zealot Jew is not there. You have to really try hard, don't you? to imagine him as, as the Apostle Paul as this evil person. When you hear the Apostle Paul, all you can think about is this evangelist, this missionary, this person who is so zealous for Jesus Christ, who would give himself over and over again for the gospel. Even though most of his life has been used to what persecute the church, but you don't see him that way. What you do, what you have done, can be completely overshadowed by what you will do. Don't think about the past. Don't dwell on the past. What you have done in the past is not going to be compared to what you will do in the future if you engage in what the Apostle Paul is saying. I am, meaning I am not who I was before, this crazy person who persecuted the church. I am this apostle, the servant of God, the one who's willing to be stoned and whipped, thrown in prison gladly because of this one thing that happened in my life. And he said, I am what I am is because of the grace of God. What is this grace? To understand grace, we need to understand our human nature. When I say grace, you think about grace, the opposite of grace is nature. Grace and nature are the opposing end of this mindset. So when we are in grace or we are under grace, then we are not in our human nature. When we are in our human nature, then we are not under grace. These two are opposing. 
literature, you read theological writings, this is always the case. When they talk about grace, they're talking about something that is against human nature. When you talk about human nature, it is against grace. Those two are opposite. Everyone is under sin. This is the first and most important doctrine that you need to learn. Jews, Gentiles, everyone is under sin. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, he says, For the scripture tells us that we are all under sin. The Bible tells us, I don't feel like it. How do you feel like you are under sin if you are in sin? You can't. Does the fish know that it is underwater? You can't. You don't. If you are in sin, you don't know that you're in sin. Only when you are shown grace, then you know that you are in sin. So everyone who is born of Adam is under sin because sin has been imputed to you. Adam sinned. And therefore, all that is born of Adam, doesn't matter how you look, you're a sinner. Now, whether you know it or not, that's a different issue. But we're all sinners because we're all from Adam. The Apostle Paul stated very clearly, he said, There is none righteous. No, not one. No one is righteous. No one except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ. All is under sin, no one is righteous, and therefore what we have is we have our human sinful nature. That's what we have. And everyone who has a sinful nature will do sin. You do sin. We do sin. I do sin. Everyone does sin. That's what we do. And because we do sin, the two things that sin will do. One, we disregard God's law. Where does that come from? God told Adam, don't eat the fruit. What did he do? He ate the fruit. He disregards God's law, and therefore that propensity passed on to his children. And we, human, with that same nature, has that same propensity to disregard God's law. When God says, don't do this, we do it. It's in our human nature. You know that you have to wake up an hour earlier today? You fought hard, and some of you failed all of you here succeeded. The second thing that we face is that we do not recognize nor do we pursue God. That is also a sin. Not recognizing God is a sin. In your week, when you go through every day's life, do you think about God? Do you put God and the thought of God before everything else in your life? If you don't, that is your human nature under sin is causing you to not recognizing God nor pursuing God, following after God, and that is also sin. Those two things are called unrighteousness. Disobedience to God's law is unrighteous because we transgress God's law. Unrighteousness a problem because you will be judged and will be found guilty and then will be executed. So unrighteousness is the rejection of God's law and not recognizing and pursuing God. That is unrighteousness. Righteousness, on the other hand, is complete obedience to God. Have you been completely obedient to God?
the thought just make us cringe, doesn't it? How do you know? How do you become obedient to God? Man is born without the knowledge of obedience, but then you can be taught to be obedient to God. The Bible is written in the word and language that you understand. So now, the Apostle Paul says, you don't have an excuse. You know what obedience to God means because you can read. Now, if you were born before Martin Luther and the printing press, you can say, I don't have the means to because the Bible is written in Greek and the most popular version of it would be Latin and I don't speak Latin. Well, you know what? You're still responsible for it. Just as you say, I'm going to be ignorant, I'm not going to learn how to read English. Everyone is responsible for the word. You see, God doesn't have to say, I'm going to make you know how to read the Bible. He doesn't. It is because we have already sinned. We have already broken the law of God. It is not up to God. It is up to you and I to figure out that we are in sin and turn our life around. But here's the problem. You can't. You don't know. You won't be able to. Today, all of you sitting in this room, you can read, hopefully, prayerfully. I would hope so. And because you know what the law says, but I would say the majority of the people here have difficulty obeying God, don't we? And that is because of our human nature. We don't want to. We don't want to obey God, even though we know it is right. Now, how do you know that what God says in here is right? You said, well, it's the Bible. The Bible must be right. But how do you know? Theologians and the church fathers have given us something that you can go by. And that is called supernatural existential. Meaning there's some element in you, in each one of us, allows us to know that God is real and what he's written is real and is true. Now you say, well, how does that, how do I know that is true? How do you know anything is true? You go to school, they teach you, you believe it. That's how we know everything, don't we? Or everything that we know, we've been taught. And so you need to come to it with a certain kind of faith first. How you know one plus one is two? You've been taught. You believe it. You just take it. But can you prove it? You can. How many of us care? You just use it, don't you? So I'm giving you some principle. If, and I pray maybe in the future, you will become theologians. And you figure it out. You spend your life and figure out supernatural existential. That would be a great thing to get into and discover. Calculus, someone has to discover it. It's there, but when someone discovers it, we can all use it, can we? So now, let's all use the theological understanding that's been made available for us. And this is one of those things. Supernatural, existential is how we know that this is right and that we should follow it. We need the supernatural existential that tells us what God is doing is right because whatever we can think of and whatever is in our heart is flawed. 
And the reason why it is flawed, two things. Number one, we are capable of both good and evil. If you are capable of both good and evil, then there's something wrong with you. If you are both capable of truth and lies, there's something wrong with you. In a perfect state like God, He's incapable of evil and He's incapable of lies. But if you are capable of both truth and lies, then how can I trust you? How can you trust yourself? When is it that you are being truthful and when is it you are being a liar? So because of that, our nature is flawed. And because your nature is flawed, whatever you can come up with has a big question mark at the end of it. You might be saying, oh, I love this so much. And I will tell you, really? You are capable of both love and hate. It's both inside of you. First of all, the mechanics that shows us that we are wicked is our heart. The Bible says the heart of man is desperately sick. Because we have this factory inside of us that makes us sick, we can't trust ourselves. So who can you trust you can't trust yourself? Because you can't trust yourself and therefore your decisions are flawed. You cannot choose what is good. There are times when you, if you know, if you have studied, if, if you have read articles and it scared you that if you keep eating the cookies, you will have the urge to resist it. But for how long? They've done this experiment. They put cookies and then they put peas into bowls. They put it in front of the students. These are smart students, but here's the kicker. In this experiment, they gave them very difficult math problems to solve. As they're working on the math problems, they get hungry because they're expending the energy in their brain. And as their brain uses up energy, guess what they reach out for when they are hungry? Not the peas, the cookies. You see, we know what is right, but the problem is our nature is flawed. And so we choose what is not good for us because that's in our nature. Because we choose what is not good, it prevents us from choosing life. But human, we want to be happy. That's why all of you are here. The pursuit of happiness for human being, it is built into us. Teleology is the, the study of happiness. We want to pursue happiness. And because we can't, because our nature make all the bad decisions, we cannot make the right decision to be completely happy. And so we're looking for temporary happiness, such as the sugar in the cookie, but then it has consequences. You engage in sin temporarily, but like all of us know, when we look at something that's sinful and we want to engage in it, everything tells us that it is the best thing for us to do. After you've done it, what happens? Guilt sets in. Why is that? Because it does not bring true happiness. And therefore you have guilt. Because you have guilt, because we, human beings, we want to be happy. And we seek after happiness. So therefore you see many people work, 
earn money, but they don't spend money. They just want the idea of having money. Those who spend money will keep on spending because nothing satisfies them. Those who look for happiness in relationships, they go from one relationship to the next because they can't find happiness in the long run. All happiness in the world is temporary and we grown really tired of it. The first time you got your phone, you're really happy. You play with it, you said, this, is, this would make me happy. And where is it now? Everything that brings us happiness in this life is only temporal. It does not last because we cannot attain true happiness because of our human nature prevents us from choosing what is truly will bring us happiness. We become dissatisfied, we become angry, we become upset because everything that we do bring us unhappiness rather than happiness. Even though in the beginning we thought those things would bring us happiness. Oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He recognized that this is the problem. I want, I see, but I know I won't be happy with it. How do you and I, how can we choose to be happy? Well, we can't. And therefore, this is where God comes in. Jesus Christ is God's answer to man's nature. Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. When I talk about grace, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. It is not this thing, ephemeral thing, or this concept. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So your nature is you. God's grace is Jesus Christ. With that, let's look at grace and election. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace is a person. Grace is not a theological concept. It is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is the response to our sinful nature. Grace is unmerited favor by God to man for the purpose of saving him. Let me explain what that is. God gave us grace to deliver us out of making wrong decisions due to our sinful nature. That's what grace is. Grace is God's help for us to get out of our sinful nature. Grace is what caused you, when you heard the alarm clock this morning, to spring up and say, I'm ready. This morning, my alarm rang at five o'clock, which was four o'clock yesterday. The thing that got me out of the bed and did my 30 push-ups, I thought about you, I got out. Grace is external. Our happiness is external to who we are. When you look internally for motivation, you will fail. If you look for anything that is internal to motivate you, you will fail. If you look outside of you, if you look beyond you, who Jesus is in your life in relation to other people, then you will have the grace of God to do those things that you are unwilling or unable to do. And that's, that's what grace is. Paul used the term appeared here to really emphasize that grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the hope and is the dream of the Apostle Paul to see Christ form in you. 
I travail in birth pain to see Christ forming in you. And my hope, I'm not the Apostle Paul. And maybe I have an inclination because I read and I feel what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. And my hope is to see Christ form in you. That's why I got out of bed this morning. That's my hope. And that's the only thing that drives me out of bed. If I live for myself, I would not get out of bed. I wouldn't even set an alarm clock. There's no motivation for me. But because of the church, because of you, the grace of God allows me to spring out of bed, to do against my human nature. God is righteous because He is the Creator. We violated His law. We have nothing to say. There is nothing, no platform for you and I, for anyone to come to God and say, you ought to save me because you created me. We have no platform to say anything to God at all because we have sinned and God says, once you eat it, you will die. He said it already. Man is not in any position to demand grace at all. That's, that's why it's grace. If we demand grace, the Apostle Paul, then it's not grace. What is it? It's wage. But we are not in position to demand grace, and therefore, if God has given to us, it is holy because of His mercy and not because we deserve it or we demand of it. You look in your family and you look the history in your past, and you say, well, I see a lot of people who should have deserved grace, but why didn't they? My grandmother, she was a great person. She didn't do anything wrong to anyone. Why didn't God give her the grace to be saved? The Apostle Paul has an answer to that. He said, oh man, who art thou? That replies it against God. Shall the thing formed say to the thing that is formed, why hast thou made me thus? We are not in any position. We sin. All of us. None of us is righteous. So we have no authority and no position to say to God, why? Our best thoughts is sinful because of our nature. The problem is, until the time of Copernicus, we think, and we still do think, that we are the center of the universe. Aren't we? I am this great person. Everyone has to love me. I love this cartoon. It's a cartoon about dinosaurs. And there's this baby. And his famous line is, got to love the baby, got to love the baby. It perfectly illustrates our human nature. We think we are at the center of the universe. We think we're all that. We think that we are so important, we're so special. Everyone has to love us. It's not true. You grow up and you realize that, what, no. The earth revolves around the sun. We're not the center of the universe where all other planets revolve around us. No. Heresy, I am the center of the world. Once we figure it out that we are insignificant, we're nothing to be proud of, then we begin to see, to figure out what is at the center of the universe. It's definitely not you and I. We're not at the center of the universe. God elects some for salvation. But you say, why? Why doesn't God elect everyone? We can have a longer discussion on that, but let me give you my thought on this. God only elects some for salvation, and He rejects others. I can hope 
that he saves all. Now, there's only three things left. Faith, love, and hope. I still have hope. I hope that he saves all. The doctrine tells me that he does not. That's what my faith tells me. He elects some, but not all, for salvation. A great theologian and church father, Augustine, says this, God is unequal, but he is not unjust. And here's the reason. God is unequal. He said he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Even before they were born. They had nothing to do with God's decision. It is God's grace that he said, I love Jacob, I don't love Esau. And therefore, whom he loves, he gives grace to know him and then to pursue him and then to love him and then to get saved. But what about Esau? Why does God hate someone? So that we can understand this dichotomy. The term is use hate. Now, God doesn't speak English. You know that, right? God doesn't speak Hebrew or Greek. He speaks God. So we, to our best ability, try to interpret what God is saying. And all language is very limited. Let me try to attempt to explain to you what this means when God says, I love Jacob and hate Esau. All it means is that he has shown his mercy on Jacob and allowed everything else to remain the same. Are you following? A grandfather and a grandson walking on the beach. As they were walking on the beach, they saw a lot of starfish stranded on the beach. The grandfather picks up one and throws it in the ocean. And then he walks along, as they walk along, picks up another one, he throws it in the ocean. And the grandson says, why'd you do that? There's so many of them. The grandfather says, well, it made a difference to that one. We are dead because of our sin. We are dead. If God chose to show mercy on one, <coughs> he's still merciful, even though he did not show mercy on all. Because we deserve death. We don't deserve life. God's election is that he chose some to receive grace and not all. But we can hope that he shows grace to all. Ephesians 2.5 says, When we were dead in our sins, God quickened us together with Christ by the grace we are saved. So what saves us is because Jesus Christ resurrected, then he can resurrect us with him. That's grace. What that means is that we are all condemned to sin. We're all going to die. But some of us will get resurrected through Christ Jesus, and that's grace. What gets resurrected is your grace. And I'm saying your grace because God has given you grace so that you can overcome your human nature. Let's try to figure out how to understand this grace. When God chooses someone to have grace, that person 
will have faith to believe in God and therefore saved. Martin Luther says there are three things that contrary to the Catholic Church, by faith alone, by grace alone, and the scripture alone. Those three things. Sola fide, sola gratia, and sola scriptura. You are saved by grace, and it's not yours, your grace. It was God give you that grace. And through that grace, you will have faith, and only by faith, not by works, not because my grandmother was a good person. He, she did many, many good things for people. None of those works really matter to God. It does not matter because dead people, their works are dead. Only by faith in Jesus Christ we are saved, and the scripture is the only authority. Now that you understand grace, let me tell you a story, and then we'll go into the conclusion. Matthew chapter 20, there was a vineyard owner. He goes into the marketplace in the morning. At the early morning, he saw some people just standing around. He said, hey, seems like you're not doing anything. Why don't you follow me? Come work in my vineyard. I promise to pay you a penny a day. Penny at the time, it's a day's wage. And then he goes back out into the marketplace at the third hour. He saw some men standing around and said, why don't you come with me? Come work for me, I'll pay you a day's wage. And then he did so in sixth hour and then in the eleventh hour. Okay, eleventh hour is the last hour to work. The people that he took in at the eleventh hour and he said, come work for me and I will give you a day's wage. Now imagine if you're standing around all day and someone come and said, hey, work for me, I'll give you a day's wage. When he called them all together at the 12th hour and he pays them, so he begins with the person who worked only one hour and he said, here's your wage, a day's wage. One penny. Yes, awesome, you're a man of your word. And then he goes to the person who worked at the sixth hour, half a day, here's a penny. And then he goes to the one who he hired early in the morning who had agreed that they would get paid one penny. And they're thinking, yeah, I worked the entire day. He should give me more. And then he said, here's a penny. And then indignation. What? But I, but I worked the entire day. That guy only worked one hour and he got paid the same as me. How is that so? This is how grace works. Our human nature demands more than what we deserve. We don't deserve to be paid at all. We deserve to be standing at the marketplace, unhired, bum, not worth anything, and someone hired us. And now, because we've received something, or we've seen someone receive grace, now we are indignant because we think we're better than someone else. Grace makes us all the same. Grace makes us all the same. That's what grace is. If you wrap your mind around that, you will understand what it means, what grace means, and what is God's mercy means to us. Envy, jealousy, ugly things, ugly things. And what the grace of God does in our hearts is that He allows us to surpass those ugly sentiments. So what the grace of God does in us is that there are many people at the marketplace. 
but God only picks a few of them to come work for him. Could he pick everyone? He could. I hope he picked everyone. But he didn't. He picked some. The grace of God, when he comes and he picks someone, it is irresistible. What does it mean to be irresistible? I was at work. There is a store on Santana Row. Uh, it's a sporting goods store. Now, they just remodel in early morning. And as I walk by the Lululemon store, there are two very young ladies in Lululemon outfit. This is what they do. Right inside the glass display case. They just stand there, they go. Now, at first I thought, what on earth? What is going on? The first thing I thought was, wow, the mannequins can now move. <laughs> this is amazing. And then I, no, those are real people. They are doing squats in the window. I could not, for my life, get my eyes off of what's happening on my right hand side. I'm walking, I'm like, what is going on? And so are the few other men. The women stop. The men, irresistible. Can't stop it. You just have to look at it. It's a, extraordinary. That's what irresistible means. It means that it is outside of your control, your ability to control how you would respond to it. So when God gives you grace, it is irresistible in a way that you cannot but accept it. Junior high school, eighth grade, I was about to graduate. Didn't speak a, a lick of, of English. Probably ugliest kid in the school. I was dark, I have like an ugly hairdo, <coughs> and I don't speak English, and I, I'm, I'm just, just not cute. Yeah, I'm not a cute eighth grader. I was short, I was black. <laughs> um, I'm not saying those qualities are bad, but I'm just saying on me. Now, I had no plans. Absolutely no zero plan to go to the dance. So in junior high, you have to dance. Until someone show up. She was blonde, she was tall, her name was Joran. She was from Sweden. And she said, would you like to go to a dance with me? Irresistible! I was like, Yes, I know that word, yes. <laughs> Absolutely, I go with you. Even though I didn't know how to dance, I don't know what to do there. But irresistible. When God's grace gets to you, it gets into your soul. All those things that you've been longing for, the happiness that you could not achieve through your life, when God shows you the grace, it opens up, you can't but say yes. Yes, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. That is what it means to be irresistible. It is not because you can't, you hate it, but you can't. No, it's not that. 
It is because he has shown you love and you said, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And now he's shown me and I receive it. That's what it means to be irresistible. And the grace of God, when it's irresistible, it replaces your human nature. When the grace of God replaces your human nature, you spring out of bed in the morning thinking about his people, thinking about your church, and you're energized. I'm ready for this. It is not because, oh man, it gives you the power, it gives you the enthusiasm to get over it. That's what God's grace does to you. And it overcomes our human nature to believe that what I'm doing here today, what you will be doing by the grace of God will be glorious, will be eternal, will have an effect on other people around you for all of eternity. It enables the sinners to recognize love. I thought, I thought that I was unloved. You know, even I was one of the five Vietnamese at the school at the time. The other four picked on me. I told them, I'm Vietnamese. And they say, no, no, you're not. They just don't want to believe me because they want to pick on me. I went through the four year of, of middle school and I thought, nobody likes me. Until someone shows up and said, hey. She was actually, everyone was shocked because she asked me because all the boys wanted to go with her. <laughs> you see, the effect of grace is just that. You deject it, you reject it, you think no one cares. You think your life has no meaning until God's grace shows up. And you say, what? Me? How? And then love, when the grace of God is shown to me, then there's something different. I went home, I burned all my comic books. When God's grace showed up, when I was encountered by the grace of God, and notice I used the term, grace of God encountered me, not I somehow found grace. When grace of God encountered me, I went home. Everything that I owned that was dear to me, I got rid of. I got rid of everything, because I found love. Irresistible. Grace does crazy things to you. You find the thing that you're looking for and everything else just doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything anymore. The grace of God is irresistible in that way. And we are saved. God has predestined us to be saved. Okay? And by grace alone, it is irresistible. If God's shown you His grace, you will be a completely different person. Now, what are the effects of grace? The effects of grace are these things. Number one, I want to talk about the signs of grace. When God has given you grace, what are the signs that you can identify in your own lives? And they are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Excellent. Those are the signs. You look at the fruit and you know the tree. If the tree was rooted in, in grace, then the fruit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, self-control, and meekness. Grace is abundant. God will give you grace. 
He has chosen and give you grace. You will have grace and it will manifest in your life in those qualities. The power of grace is your willingness to obey God. That is also the effect of grace. When grace comes into you, mind you, I show up for that dance way earlier than I should. I don't want to miss it. But when you do have an important meeting to get to, for example, if you need to get to a job interview. How many of you have been late for a job interview? <laughs> All right, well, that doesn't illustrate. The majority, the, the overwhelming majority of you will never show up late for, uh, for an interview. Why? Because you're looking forward to it. You want to make a good impression. When the grace of God comes into your life, you will obey all the rules, all the laws. You show up early and you're ready. And lastly, the work of grace. The evidence of grace in Paul's life made him who he was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What grace caused the Apostle Paul was ministry. The Apostle Paul engaged in God's work because of the grace of God that's producing and working in his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And listen to this. This is what he says. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Note the term bestowed upon me. God gives grace. We don't seek and find grace. God bestowed grace upon us. And he said, And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. The grace of God will never become stifled because of who you are. When you receive grace, you will produce. This is God's economy. It does not fail. When you have been given grace, you will produce. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says, it was bestowed upon me not in vain, meaning he becomes productive for the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, but I labored more abundantly than they all. So the grace of God produced in us gives us the power, but we still have to do the work. I labored more than they all. You see, you still got to get up. It is your legs. It is your hands. The grace of God motivates you and you can't but obey it. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. This is the effect of grace. When grace gets into you, it gives you the motivation to get up. It gives you the motivation to be productive for the kingdom of God. And it's not you. It is God that labor, his grace that labors in you, through you. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach, so you believe. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you that your grace has found us wherever we are, that you've given us the unction and you will give us the power and you would give us the joy in knowing that your grace would produce in us the qualities that would give us this expression of love, of purpose. Father, I pray for each one of us who are here today. May your grace found us, Lord. 
and may we become changed forever by this grace.